0: Hello again, folks. It's Archery, your host, and welcome to Why We Do The Work. And the top of this, I'd like to give you a trigger warning. Why We Do The Work is a podcast where we discuss cancer and industrial pollution, and we're based out of Eugene, Oregon, but we talk about spaces throughout Oregon, not just in Eugene. But this podcast is based out of Eugene, Oregon. And if you're triggered by cancer, take care of yourself. Today we are joined by one of my favorite people of all time, Lisa Arkin, Director, Executive Director of Beyond Toxics. Um, you've heard me mention her quite a bit on the show, and today is the day that she finally said yes. So, folks, welcome, Miss Lisa Arkin. Hi, Lisa. Good
1: morning, Audrey. Well, here it's morning time. Thanks for having me on. Why we do the work?
0: Yes, thank you for being on. Why we do the work, and for making it possible. Uh, for this to be a reality. So thank you for coming and chatting with us today. And we all, always, as always, we've got Crystal there in the background and she's working her magic. So thank you, Crystal. So who who is Lisa? I, you know, as you know, when I get folks on this show, I like to Google them and know who it is that I'm speaking to. And you have done so much amazing work throughout um, Oregon. That a lot of things come up when you Google your name, so let's just talk a little about a little bit about who Lisa is in the beginning, and I don't even think I know where you were born. Where were you born, Lisa? I was born back on the East Coast.
1: my family moved out to the West Coast when I was about five years old so i I guess I consider myself a California girl ultimately. Yes, but I was born on the East Coast.
0: Nice. Nice. See, I see. I didn't know that. I didn't know if you ended up, I didn't know how you ended up in Oregon. So I'm glad that you said that. What about East Coast? Because my, my in-laws are from uh, Boston and they still have, after all these years of living here in the Northwest, they still have a Boston accent. So what what part of the East Coast are you from?
1: Yeah, I was born in Massachusetts, so hey, nice, but the rest of my family, everybody was born in New York, pretty much New York City.
0: That's interesting. That's great. Um, I've only been to New York once. So we've got Lisa. She was born over on the East Coast. You're a very, very private person, and I respect that, and I'm not going to ask you a bunch of the gazillion private questions, but like I said, a lot of stuff came up when I googled your name and a couple of things that you've shared with me in the past that has that I did not find when I was searching you is that you were a dance professor and also a historian what I don't know is where you taught besides University of Oregon did you teach somewhere else besides that
1: thanks for googling me and asking about um, an interesting part of my life yes I I was a dancer. I taught at Stanford University and the University of Oregon, and I also directed a couple of dance ensembles, and I love
0: dance. I love that about you, Lisa, and it's, like I said, a lot of people don't know that, and I told you in a conversation that we had before that when I see dances, I'm always thinking, well, I wonder if Lisa can do that, so... I'm happy that you narrowed it down to me, kind of exactly what sort of dance it is that you do. And it was really sort of technical. And I appreciate that. Maybe one day you'll dance with me. (laughs) I would love that. Let's go to a club. Dance your socks off. (laughs) So you also had an interest in history. Being a historian, do you think that that came about? Do you think because of your heritage of Russian and Ukrainian Jewish immigrants, do you think that that formed your interest in wanting to learn about history
1: that's a fascinating question thanks for asking it Audrey you know I never quite thought of it that way but I think you're I do think you're right I think that when we value our historical roots our cultural roots uh, we want to know what shaped the decisions of our ancestors why they did the things they did what caused them to leave their homes and try to seek a better life other places, so I'm sure that could be at the root of my love of history, but I think about history as a way to understand the response of people to the compelling issues of their time, Mm -hmm. and one of the reasons I love dance history is because the arts really get at the soul of a people, and What motivates them based on what their cultural history has been and how they bring their awareness of their identity into their own modern or contemporary times?
0: I, you know, I did, when I very first started back at, uh, with BT, I was doing my ancestry. And I think that that helped me want to learn everything about J.H. Baxter and, and places like that, that could be possibly polluting A neighborhood and so digging around in my ancestry was it was kind of you know it was a little bit sad to me the further back that I went because I started to get up into the area where I know that my ancestors were enslaved and to see some of those census tracts where they are describing who's in the family and there's so many uh, discrepancies in the names the way that names were spelled and it sort of touched me in a way where I was like, okay, here these people are. And a lot of times their names are misspelled or they're mispronounced or they have a strong Southern accent. So they're saying a name like Eliza and it sounds like Lazar. And so there's all these different spellings of things on there. And that, you know, helped me want to dig into what could be going on in West Eugene community because i had already sort of put on that thinking cap. So it's interesting about your about your history and your heritage and that opening up something for you to want to be able to study history. W- would you have been a history teacher if you could have been?
1: <laughs> oh, uh, that's great. I think i would have loved being a history teacher and i always thought that my father should have been a history teacher and i'm sure i learned my love of history from my father he was always discussing with me topics like the ancient pharaohs and the history of world war 1 and how how that affected his own family and choices they made because of the depression and you know it's so informative and it also helps us recognize patterns in our society mm-hmm for the good or the bad. And if we recognize bad patterns, we have to work really hard not to allow them to be repeated. So we can learn a lot from studying the mistakes of
0: the past. Yeah. So I want to get into a bit about your career now. You're a dancer, historian, granddaughter, mother our leader and you told me at one point an aha moment and i'm sorry that i don't remember exactly what that was but it was working with some children
1: yeah you know when we look with 2020 vision backwards in our lives we see patterns emerging so there was a couple of aha moments but i think the one you're talking about is uh when i was a teacher in New Orleans, mm-hmm. actually in a suburb of New Orleans called Metairie to be specific, and I was teaching as a way to pay off all my student loans from college, mm-hmm. and I really loved teaching. I just want to say those were some of the happiest years of my life. And I, I was teaching fourth and fifth grade in a classroom for children with learning disabilities. Mm-hmm. But that aha moment was when, as often was the case, uh, down in the mouth of the Mississippi River, two tankers collided. I don't know exactly what they were carrying because we were never told what they were carrying, but it was chemicals and or petroleum products. And the tankers collided and uh, spewed all those chemicals into the river. And Mississippi, the Mississippi River is the drinking water source. For the people of New Orleans. And because of that spill, the water was coming out of our faucets and our our drinking fountains a bright orange. Oh my God. It was more than Halloween orange. And I remember being shocked that there weren't provisions for the kids to have drinking water throughout the day at school. And of course, people who had the money could buy bottled water. Mm -hmm. Uh, They provided bottled water for the teachers at the school, but these kids had no choice but to be thirsty, basically. And that struck me as such an injustice. And it was combined with my horror to know that these chemicals were coursing their way through the drinking water systems of so many communities in Louisiana and I thought about how, how we've got to do something more to fix that, that shouldn't happen and why are these tankers allowed to go up the river that is also used for drinking water. So these thoughts uh, started going through my mind and I started to make connections between environmental pollution and the burden that places on communities of color and low impact, uh, low-income
0: communities. So, you're here in Eugene, you're doing the work. Did you come to Eugene because of the u of o did you come to Eugene to teach at the u of o Is that how you ended up in Eugene?
1: Yes, exactly, Audrey. I was offered a job at the University of Oregon, so I came to eugene
0: so what from where do you draw inspiration to do this work to to do environmental justice work?
1: I would have to say that I am inspired. By the concept or the practice, I should say, that I was taught even as a child, referred to as tikkun olam. It's a Hebrew phrase that means repairing the world. And the idea is that each one of us has a responsibility to make a world that is full of justice, that is full of tolerance, that is based on values of equality. And you do this through action. It really has to be action oriented. Can't just think about it or it's not even enough to give a donation to a good charity, but that we each have to take action to do this repairing. And it's, it's really important in my um, culture, uh, being a Jewish woman, that I know that I'm a connection, I'm part of the weaving that goes on in every generation that carries these responsibilities from one generation to the next generation. So I'm also obligated to teach my children and my grandchildren these values as well, and to stress that we have the capacity as human beings on this earth to bring these values to Everyday fruition, you know, to bring them to fruition and to see them in action every day of our lives. So it does inspire me. And even as a child, I was drawn to volunteering for things in my community, like the old hike for the hungry. And I remember my very favorite thing about Halloween was the little UNICEF box where we would collect pennies and nickels and (laughs) send it off to the United Nations to Give to uh, children in other countries. I I was so excited about that. (laughs) So it's just been part of my upbringing,
0: little Lisa. That makes me so excited to think about little Lisa being excited about environmental justice. It wasn't even a term (laughs) back then. I can imagine how cute you were. So that was a beautiful answer, by the way, Lisa. I was just I know you can see my face, so I was just smiling and feeling so proud to be part of your life because you're just an amazing woman and that that answer was just icing on the cake so thank you for thank you for that answer so environmental justice is a pretty new term i took a definition of environmental justice from google i'm going to say that but then i want you to tell me what what environmental justice means to you So what I found on the web for environmental justice was the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of people, regardless of race, national origin, or income with respect to to development, implementation of enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. Now, that's a great definition. It sounds nice. We're an environmental justice organization. What does environmental justice mean to you?
1: Yeah, I'm glad that you recognize that the process of doing environmental justice is very different than the kind of technical or legal meaning of environmental justice. But for me, and I think I'm speaking for Beyond Toxics as well, environmental justice is the movement that we do every day, creating a movement to unite communities, to recognize and speak out against the legacy of segregation, economic exclusion. We do the work to point out historically biased zoning codes and how those zoning codes and the planning of our communities based on those zoning codes have concentrated toxic polluters and all the environmental hazards that they bring near and within frontline communities. And so environmental justice is seeing this pattern and then using that as a lens to look for how do we make change in the world. So we're looking for change, a movement to create change so that we stop these underlying systemic patterns and the laws that allow these cumulative exposures to environmental pollution to force bad health outcomes on our frontline communities of color, low-income communities, and sometimes rural communities. You know, I I get excited when I think about environmental justice because to me, I mean, yes, there's a basic meaning, but we're seeing it happen every single day in the work that we do. I know you feel that way, Arjorie. Yes. Um, the, the more we look at these patterns I just described, the more we see how we can take action to change them. <clears throat> and and mostly to call it out this this thing that happens or has happened throughout the history of this country where polluters get rich while the rest of us bear the brunt of the air and water and ground pollution i mean that's injustice and all those profits that these corporations that run these toxic facilities make they are kept internally while they're externalizing or they're sort of casting off the harm from air pollution and water pollution onto the people who are least able to defend themselves. Mm -hmm. So every day for us, for you and me, the rest of our staff at Beyond Toxics, environmental justice is the act of fighting to end these patterns of externalizing harm onto vulnerable people and to stop this injustice. So it's environmental injustice we're working to stop. It's racial injustice we're working to stop. And it's social injustice. So we're stopping these systemic patterns.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. You know, it was a new term for me um, back when I started with Beyond Toxics. And over the course of time, I've learned that I've been a victim of it throughout my childhood and my adult life and things I never thought were hurting me were actually hurting me. And so some of the things that, something that was created in 1996 to sort of help get the public informed was the Eugene uh, Right to Know program. And that was required, that required manufacturing communication to the public about the use and disposal of hazardous substances. So that happened in 1996. And what I read, well, first of all, Did you have anything to do with the Right to Know program?
1: I didn't personally have anything to do with the creation of Mm -hmm. the Eugene Toxic's Right to Know ordinance. It's actually a charter uh, requirement, a city charter amendment. But soon after it was created, I began to work alongside those people who did work so hard to get this city charter adopted by a vote of the people.
0: Uh, The next thing I was going to ask you about that was, um, because we're going to start talking about Beyond Toxics right now, how it came to pass, why its name was changed, etc. So um, what I read was that 1996, when that Programmers was created, and I haven't met these folks, but that inspired Mary O'Brien, Michael Kerrigan, and Steve Johnson, to form an organization dedicated to toxics and use and toxic use and reduction and environmental justice. So it inspired those three folks to to form this organization and at the time it was called Oregon Toxic Alliance. And that started back in 2000, is that right?
1: Yeah, it started in 2000, you're correct, and then Oregon Toxics Alliance as the original name was back in the day became incorporated as a nonprofit in the year 2001 in January so right at the start
0: of the year nice and why why did the name change well
1: ultimately the name changed because we continued to build our focus on environmental justice and we wanted our name to say our intention right out of the gate you know like nobody can doubt, doubt what beyond toxics is about Mm -hmm. Our name name says our mission right there. But the old name, Oregon Toxics Alliance, was chosen because the founders had envisioned like a consortium or an alliance of lots of groups doing this work. But the problem was the word Oregon Toxics Alliance also sounded like a business bureau. And oftentimes I was asked if I were a lying the businesses that were the polluters, if I were bringing the polluters together in right. Oregon. So we realized that the name was not descriptive of the work we were called to do.
0: I didn't know that. And I can see how it would look like you guys were trying to be allies with the toxic guys. Um, yep. <laughs> did you work, uh, had you worked nonprofit before Beyond Toxics? No,
1: I hadn't, but you know, I was often involved with nonprofits, but uh, I never uh, was a staff member at a nonprofit. So B- BT
0: Beyond Toxics was the very first. Yes, it was. And I'm going to share our mission statement with the folks, and then um, we're going to talk a little bit about how legislation plays a part in environmental justice, climate justice, and it, how nonprofit fits into that. So, our mission statement Beyond Toxics provides leadership to build community-driven environmental justice movement for a thriving and just Oregon. I mean, that's that's a snippet of something. It's a small definition of the things that we do at Beyond Toxics and I have appreciated everything that I've learned about nonprofit and environmental justice as the WECO. Do you know what that is, Lisa?
1: Oh, I can take a guess <laughs> Does that happen to me? The West Eugene Community organizer?
0: Yes, it does the w e c o so things I've learned as the West Eugene Community organizer have been just insurmountable, and you know i I'm hoping that you can explain to folks that are not familiar with nonprofits or how they have anything to do with legislation, like how would you explain how those two coincide? Like, what does legislation have to do with environmental and climate justice?
1: Absolutely. But before I do that, I just want to say that you are an excellent WECO. <laughs> Young Toxics is so enriched by having you on our staff Beautiful. and the passion and enthusiasm you bring to the work you do and how beautifully you do that work. So I just, I got to put that out there. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I'm. I'm feeling lucky to be on this uh podcast, be part of this discussion with you.
0: Oh, Lisa, thank you so much. That means a tremendous amount to me because ultimately, I want you to like this. I I want everybody to listen to it and like it and enjoy it, but your opinion and your feedback and your thoughts about this and allowing me to do this are really really important to me. So, thank you for that recognition. I I'm having a great time with this podcast and and thank you beyond toxics for sponsoring it because we wouldn't be able to do it. um, I wouldn't be able to do it without you. So I appreciate you as well, Lisa, very much.
1: Well, this podcast that you've created is doing such a beautiful job of educating people and it's happening all over the world. So that's part of our, our goal, right? Is to keep, uplifting communities in their knowledge and making sure their voices are heard. And that's what you're doing. Thanks Lisa. (laughs) So you asked about what does legislation have to do with nonprofit work? And I see it as a two part process. First of all, we've got to be in community. We've got to be part of a community. We've got to understand what's happening in that community, the impacts they're feeling, the, um, environmental problems they're experiencing, and we got to really listen. And then as we listen and grow with that community, we begin to understand what's wrong with the system. What in the system caused the injustice they are experiencing? So when you look at the root causes, we have to go back to legislation. I mean, legislation is really the way our society and our and the government that represents us expresses our societal shared values and moral understandings, right? Legislation sets up the statutes and the rules that form a contract between our government and our people. Like an example that we kind of work with every day at Beyond Toxics is examining the intention of the Clean Air Act. I mean, the Clean Air Act was developed in the 1970s. And at the time it was really viewed as a strong contract between the US Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, and all of the residents of the United States that the government would limit pollution to a level that was assumed to be safe. But now we know that science and community experiences have shown that the Clean Air Act needs updating and needs to further represent our shared values and our knowledge about how air pollution harms public health. So that's our role is that we want to um, hold our government accountable to the original intent of the law for the good of the people, but also to take into account all the ways that we better understand how air pollution, contamination, of our communities and negative effects on public health are happening. So we're identifying like the shortcomings in the law, the weak points, and we're working with legislators, the lawmakers to use the system to fix it, to fix it, to update it, to make it better, to make it stronger. Because many of these laws were created by the polluters originally. I mean, the intent of the government was to do better, but, uh, As we now know, so many of these laws give loopholes and off-ramps and favoritism to the actual polluters. So this is a tenet of environmental justice is to make sure the community has the right to know, like you were asking about the Eugene Toxic's right to know law. Just having the right to know what's happening in your community is the foundation of environmental justice. And then with that knowledge, you can then better identify the weaknesses in older laws that need updating. And then we bring community experience to the attention of legislators to say, hey, we've got to work together to improve our laws so that the people are protected and the people are valued and the people are contributing to a better society.
0: Great. That's a great answer, Lisa, because I know that you explained a whole lot to me as well. A lot of people don't even know what nonprofit does. Like a lot of people don't understand how that works and especially how that would have anything to do with lawmaking. Like a a lot of people would be like, what don't you just like hold bake sales? And (laughs) you know, (laughs) what exactly does a nonprofit do? Like, I don't even think, I mean, I know that my kids, know about my job. They know what I do. They get the gist of it. But they, I mean, if they had to explain, well, what does my mom do? Oh, well, she works for an environmental justice nonprofit. That, that's what they'll, what they'll say. But they have absolutely no idea what, how much goes into the work that we do at Beyond Toxics. And it's not just a local level, it's state level. And you know, that it sort of blows their mind sometimes when I'm telling them the type of meetings that we're in and cool things that happen. You know, we meet awesome people that want to work with us in, in some sort of capacity. And I'll explain that to some of my my kids or my husband, and they'll be like, wow, really? And so I, just, I, I know that my in-laws don't really know what I do. <laughs> like, so thank you for explaining uh, how legislation can tie into nonprofit and, and why we need it there.
1: You know, Audrey, it's always our saying that we're working to put ourselves out of work, right? <laughs> yeah. hopefully someday you know uh toxics law won't be needed because we have now a just transition to a healthy and sustainable society, and we also go to the legislature without any economic interest in the outcome. We're not trying to make money off of what we're doing to recommend improvement of our laws as state legislators. It's not profiting us or anything we do. And I think I really want to say that because I've heard some people at the legislature who would like to not change any laws say, well, you're, you're biased. You have a, an interest. And I always want to say our only interest is in improving public health. Improving environmental protection. We have no interest to profit from any of this. So mm-hmm. it's very important to point out that a nonprofit works in the in- interest of the community and not in the interest of corporations while also making sure our economy is working in a healthy way. You know, we don't want to buy into the jobs versus environment argument because that's a false argument. The more we protect workers, the more we protect communities, the more viable our businesses will be.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Lisa, thank you for going into a little bit more with that because I think, like I said, there's a whole idea about nonprofit that people just don't understand it. So, you have been instrumental in helping the Cleaner Air Oregon happen, right? Did you help with that at all in any capacity? I think I read that. Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) The way I helped with the adoption of the Cleaner Air Oregon laws was um, to be part of the impacted community. Well, actually, I should say, I was a strong ally to the impacted community because the awareness of how our air quality regulations in Oregon were sorely lacking. Oregon was ranking at the bottom of the pile for states that were taking action to protect the quality of our air. Oregon was not doing a good job. And it all came to the surface when it was discovered that a company in Portland called Bullseye Glass Mm -hmm. was emitting heavy metals into the air without any or very few uh, air pollution controls at their facility, and they were poisoning the nearby neighborhood. So um, I worked with that community as an ally, and then I also served as a governor appointee to the Cleaner Air Oregon Rules Advisory Committee. And my role was really to push hard for an environmental justice perspective to the adoption of better laws To improve our air quality in Oregon. At one of the very first or maybe the first meeting of the Cleaner Air Oregon Rules Advisory Committee, Governor Kate Brown came to the meeting because Cleaner Air Oregon was her initiative. And, you know, she's a governor, she's a busy woman, but we managed to sidle up to her. And when I say we, I'm talking about uh, Catherine Saltzman, who was uh, founding member of the Eastside Portland Air Coalition, the community that was in, uh, in fact, being poisoned by bullseye glass. We we got in there. We shouldered our way over to stand next to her, and we just directly asked her if she was concerned about environmental justice and would li- would like to see the outcome of Cleaner Air Oregon be based on environmental justice values. And she agreed with us, and she said yes. And to me, that moment changed everything Mm. because she said it publicly, and I believe she was quoted in media somewhere. And so our state agencies had to understand that our governor was directing them to include environmental justice as part of the rulemaking. Mm. So I, I love thinking back on that moment where Governor Kate Brown acknowledged the need for environmental justice. And really set the tone for the work that laid in front of us.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a giant. And thank you for uh, saddling up to her and saying, hey, what about this? Because, I mean, we wouldn't have this without that. So, um, And as a reminder out there, folks, Cleaner Air Oregon, it's a program that regulates emissions of toxic air contaminants from industrial and commercial commercial facilities based on the local risk to health. This program makes sure that facilities are in compliance with their air permits. So, I just wanted to let you all know what Cleaner Air Oregon is as we're talking about it. So, Lisa, beyond toxics, we do work in many different areas environmental justice, climate justice, pesticide reform, air quality. We've got communications and GIS and and spatial data. Could you share with folks how far environmental justice has come in air quality? Like how how far have we come along with air quality and environmental justice together?
1: That's an exciting question, and um, I believe that having the environmental justice perspective woven into our environmental laws around air quality is changing everything. Mm -hmm. You know, up until we started talking about impacts on the community, uh, it was just assumed that a polluter could have their emissions waft and drift into the community itself. And as long as they were following that old Clean Air Act, you know, the regulations there, they were pretty much not liable for those impacts. But we now know that a chain link fence is not gonna protect a community Mm -hmm. from the pollution that's moving through the air. And that we know that all the equipment that's inside that chain link fence may not be enough to actually create an environment for clean air. Mm -hmm. So I think what, for me, environmental justice has done is help us connect the dots all the way from the moment that a resource is extracted. Let's just take coal, you know, from the moment a a mining operation begins and a resource like coal or potassium is extracted from the earth or trees are cut from the uh, bosom of the mother earth and how that extraction right there first of all, harms the workers, and then harms the nearby community with the contamination of groundwater or surface water, air quality. We all know how mining can impact communities downriver. But then those resources are brought to factories that are most often located in low-income and communities of color. Mm -hmm. So environmental justice starts to expose that And in order for those resources to get there, they're trucked or they're piped or they're shipped on tankers to those communities. And then we see harm from leaking pipes or tankers that run into rocks and leak all over communities such as our Native American communities in Alaska who then can't fish and then have no food Mm. or pipes leaking into the drinking water of communities. But then <laughs> the next dot is that the factories are using our shared air and water and soil to sort of get rid of their uh, byproducts, the chemicals that are not being used, the gases, the particulate matter, the soot, the dust. All of those things are then going into our communities at no cost to those polluters, but at great cost to our communities. Then. Again, environmental justice has helped us connect the next dot, which is that those poisonous chemicals are then in the products we're selling to our communities. And especially those products that are sold to low income members of our society are more likely to be filled with toxic chemicals, uh, plastics and pesticides. And so Exposure is happening again Mm -hmm. by use of these products that were made from the extraction that we talked about earlier. And then they they get in our bodies. And then now we have illness like cancer, like asthma. And then the last piece that environmental justice has exposed is that when those polluters are tired and want to just close down communities, are stuck with the bill of cleaning up the site. And we've seen that in West Eugene, where you're doing your work, Argy, where J.H. Baxter, a wood preservative company, polluted the community and is now just walking away from it and leaving all those costs to be borne by our communities, our state, our own regulatory agencies. That whole pattern is fraught with injustice, is it not? yeah
0: oh gosh it's riddled with it so and so let's talk about JH Baxter let's talk about that biggie that's on our minds we're going to talk about beyond toxics west eugene JH Baxter and as a reminder folks JH Baxter as lisa said is a uh was a wood, tr- wood treatment plant that ceased operations on January 31st 2022 um this facility is located in the heart of west eugene and the DEQ um, determined that the facility the facility site as well as many homes near Roosevelt Boulevard had highly had dangerously high levels of dio- dioxin in the groundwater and soil. Um, this operation began in the nineteen forties. When did Beyond Toxics start work in West Eugene? like how did Beyond Toxics become aware of the environmental racism that was happening out there?
1: Well, our work started when we got phone calls from community members in West Eugene about horrible odors that were so bad that in some cases they were causing people to vomit when Mm. they smelled the odor and were forcing people to stay indoors. They couldn't use their backyards. They couldn't enjoy their neighborhood. And there were a couple of You know, like watershed moments. One of them was a time when a teacher from one of the elementary schools in West Eugene called our office in quite a panic. Mm -hmm. And she said that they were bringing the children in from recess early because, in her words, a wave of chemical smells had enveloped the playground and were causing children to feel sick. We didn't really have a clear idea of what might cause such a thing to occur at the time, but we were also getting calls from people about problems with the rail yard and uh, contaminated groundwater from um, historical practices at the Eugene Union Pacific Rail Yard, which is in the middle of our neighborhood's And in fact, that elementary school that I mentioned is kind of in between the rail yard and J.H. Baxter. But all of West Eugene is sort of in a cul-de-sac or sandwiched between quite a number of heavy industrial polluters. So the more we learned, the more we became embedded in the community and the more community members realized they could rely on us to help them. When they call, we're there for them. So I would say all of that started around very early on in the um, growth of Beyond Toxic. So I would say as early as like 2002, 2003. And then it slowly grew over time as the problems of this community became more Apparent, And we began to see the patterns of environmental racism, which are linked to the way uh, the city of Eugene has developed and where they've put polluters and where they've allowed housing.
0: To be close to businesses like that. Yeah.
1: Right. So in the case of J.H. Baxter, there are homes literally across the street from this facility. There are playgrounds,
0: and there are schools not too far away. No, nope. there's a bike path that people like to use. I mean, there's a lot of life right across the street from J.H. Baxter. Do you mind sharing a little bit about what J.H. Baxter did? I mean, just, just briefly, we don't have to go into to all of it because they did a whole lot, but what they did as a business and what types of chemicals they used and what impact they could have on human health. Like what's the main thing that we were concerned about with J.H. Baxter?
1: Well, J.H. Baxter uses a really outdated process of baking chemicals into wood to preserve the wood. So they create things like telephone poles and railroad ties. And they do that by mixing really toxic chemicals Uh, such as arsenic and chromium and insecticides Mm -hmm. into a batch and combining that with heavy duty petroleum oils. And then they take pieces of wood and they put them inside something called a retort, which is like a gigantic oven. And the wood gets infused with all these chemicals. And we would recognize those chemicals out in our communities as that black tarry substance that we call creosote, which is dripping from telephone poles or infused into railroad ties. And they also, in the process of infusing and baking these chemicals into the wood, the excess fumes have to go somewhere. And one of the things that J.H. Baxter was doing was allowing these fumes to just go into the community without the proper air pollution control
0: equipment. So in March of 2021, the, the DEQ fines J.H. Baxter $222,444. So it's more now um, as things have progressed. It's their The fine is, is bigger now. But they were fined that originally back in March of 2021 and it was for hazardous waste and water quality violations, like Lisa was explaining. So $178,905 of that was from burning off 1.7 million gallons of hazardous waste between the years of 2015 and 2019. The other part of that, which was the 14735 was for allowing untreated stormwater and water removed from the boilers to overflow into Amazon Creek. So they refined this back in 2021. As of right now, they still haven't paid that. And my question for you is, when they refined that back in 2021, did that feel like a victory for the West Eugene community for you?
1: That's an interesting question, Audrey. And I would say it felt like a minimal victory, to be totally honest, Mm -hmm. because that's not that much money. When you think about it, uh, you can't even buy a house. A family can't buy a house for that kind of money. Uh, You know, $223,000. What's that going to get anybody? And this company makes a lot of money, and they have had their wood treatment facilities throughout this country, and in many cases, those facilities are already super fun sites. They've shown a pattern of polluting a community and walking away. So this was the teeniest, tiniest mm-hmm. slap on the hand that I could ever imagine. So actually, you can hear me getting a little mm-hmm. worked
0: up about it. it. It angered me. It didn't
1: feel like a victory.
0: Yeah, it was a bittersweet. And I think, I think I said that and somebody had interviewed me and I said, yes, it feels like a victory, but it's bittersweet because there's still a whole lot of mess going on and there's still a whole lot of, we didn't do that and we're not going to pay that and we can't afford that going on with J.H. Baxter. And one of the most maddening things for me, one of the, I mean, the top maddening things is that the regulators knew that this company was a repeat intentional polluter and was declared a significant non, non-complier all the way back in 2012. So the the regulators knew about this, and I'm not going to go too far deep into that, but we did know that they knew that it was a significant non-complier back in 2012. Could you tell the folks what a significant non-complier is and why that is so maddening that the, that the regulators knew about it? Yeah,
1: I'd love to give the definition from the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality. So I'm going to kind of read right off there. But I also want to talk about how the fact that they had the knowledge that J.H. Baxter was a significant non-complier didn't at all influence their willingness to accept the community narratives of what was going on. At that facility, and I think for Beyond Toxics as an environmental justice organization, connecting these two dots are really is something that's very important. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, a, a significant non-complier are, and this is a quote, facilities that cause actual exposure or substantial likelihood of exposure to hazardous waste or hazardous waste constituents to humans or the environment. That's first thing. Also, they violate the law through flagrant or willful action. That's the second thing. Or third are chronic or recalcitrant violators. Or the last one is have violations that deviate substantially from the terms of their permits, order agreement, or hazardous waste statutory or regulatory requirements. So that's what J.H. Baxter was known to be doing flagrant and willful violations of the law, chronic violations of the law, and deviating substantially, that's a quote, substantially from the terms of their permit. Wow. Now, while this was going on, mm-hmm. Meaning that while they were being designated time and time again, not just once, but time and time again by the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality, and while the US EPA was coming in and doing inspections, the community was trying to do their part by letting these regulators know that they were having problems simply existing in their homes, Mm. as we mentioned and as you talked about bike paths and walking paths and parks, people weren't able to use them because the odor, the stench was so overwhelming that it caused nausea, headaches, rashes. And also, as we now know, has contributed perhaps to an increased rate of cancer in the surrounding neighborhoods. So people in the neighborhoods were calling the Lane Regional Air Protection Authority. That the agency that regulates air permits in our county. They were calling the DEQ. Beyond Toxics was calling the EPA. And we were told time and time again that what the community was experiencing was not connected with J.H. Baxter. They totally dismissed the learned experience of the community and made people feel stupid. (laughs) <laughs> made people feel like their experience was of their own make-believe mm-hmm. and that the
0: agencies would basically ignore this yep they did i mean they were gaslighting they're still gaslighting the whole community to say hey you know what we didn't really do that or it's not really that bad or you're not really smelling that or you know it's it's not fair that they have treated the people like this, especially when they're stepping up and speaking about it. And that's hard a lot of a lot of times for folks to even speak up and say, "Hey, there's something going on." For them to step up and do that and feel dismissed and made to feel stupid is it's not it's not fair. And JH Baxter is now claiming um, that they can't. Afford to pay for the damage that they caused over there near the homes on Roosevelt, Roosevelt. and that damage is dioxin. And um, I want to talk about what dioxin is. I mean, it's a highly toxic. It's highly toxic chemicals produced by industrial processes. But Lisa, I know that you have a much more understandable way to explain to the folks what dioxin is and why we're so afraid of it. Dioxin is a you could say a man-made compound. It's
1: not found naturally in the environment. It's not like lead or mercury. Those are things that are toxic, but they're also naturally in our environment. But dioxin is created when there's incomplete combustion or the presence of organic material with chlorine, and then something is heated up. So, I'm not a chemist, so I'm not going to claim to understand everything, but there was something about that process going on with the baking of all these toxic chemicals into the wood. So that there was heating going on, right? And that process created dioxin to be released along with the air pollution coming from J.H. Baxter. And the dioxin travels in the air and then it settles out into the onto the ground where it doesn't degrade it doesn't change and it's highly linked with cancer many kinds of cancers and reproductive harm and some people might know of dioxin from the experience of our service uh, men and women from the vietnam war where the pesticide agent orange contaminated The country of Vietnam and all the people who were there at the time um, with dioxin because our government was using tanker airplanes to spray Agent Orange all over the jungles of Vietnam even while our own citizens were there in those jungles you know supposedly doing the bidding of their country Mm -hmm. well they were doing the bidding of their country to fight the war so many of those soldiers marines air force folks came back with after the war the dioxin poisoning uh which ruined their lives and now the US government the veterans administration has acknowledged that the cause of these cancers and birth deformities in the next generation are because of the exposure to dioxin so it is
0: very serious yeah it's you know thank you for mentioning the agent orange part of it because my father-in-law is sick with cancer because of that. He was over in oh, Vietnam. Oh, I'm sorry.
1: I didn't know that, Audrey. No,
0: that's okay. I'm I'm happy that you're share that you said that because you know, I have a huge vendetta against dioxin, not only because of of my child, but because my father-in-law was poisoned unnecessarily. You know, he's over there trying to, you know, do his job in the army and get poisoned and later in life have cancer. You know, he's going through it right now. It's, it's, it's not okay. And, you know, it, it, it breaks my heart that people are being victimized over and over and over again and have been for decades. I mean, it, there's, there's no, there's no reason. There's no reason for it. It's, it's all about money. And so the DEQ found high levels of dioxin in seven yards of the homes that were being tested. Now we know that there are more homes with dioxin and they have to go deeper than the, was it 16 feet that they were going to go originally? I can't remember if it was 16 or 18 inches. um, They were originally going
1: to go like 12 inches, but now they're thinking much deeper, maybe as much as three feet.
0: That's really, really, really scary.
1: And it completely demolishes a person's home and yard. I mean, if people have invested in gardens and trees and landscaping, it's pretty much going to undo all that. I I can't even imagine a mature tree surviving the removal of three feet of soil. (laughs) So again, the harm continues in many different ways, including diminishing the property values of those homes. And a lot of those folks, that is their only or main asset. And as we know, um, it is a low-income, working-class community, and many of those people, that was their only first and only home, and they can't afford to move because they can't sell it at a high enough price to allow them to move anywhere else. So this will exacerbate that whole ugly cycle of pollution and poverty.
0: When all of it started happening, when the sampling started going on, were you, did you, in your mind, were you like, finally something's happening? Finally, we're getting somewhere. Once they actually started doing the sampling, did that feel like a relief? Was it like, okay, now something's actually really happening?
1: It is a relief because we go back to that underlying principle of the community's right to know. The Bethel community that lives in the vicinity of J.H. Baxter has the right to know exactly what has happened because of the practices of this polluter and how it could impact their lives. And if it's on their property, they have the right to know. So I am glad that the soil testing is happening. As scary as it is, it's still necessary to let the community know the stakes they're up against, right? Mm -hmm. Because they suspected it all along. Again, getting back to Valuing community experience. People have always been asking beyond toxics, do you think it's safe for me to garden in my backyard? Mm -hmm. Do you think it's safe for me to have chickens in my backyard? And without real data, anything we said was, you know, speculation or our best guess or just precautionary. Like we would always say, well, you probably want to have a raised garden bed or maybe you should garden in containers, not in the soil. I mean, we always advised that,
0: but now we know it's true. Yeah, it's true, and it's scary, and you know, it's heartbreaking the stories that we hear from Bethel community members. I mean, they're folks from asthma to cancer survivors to those who have lost their lives. Um, we have a, we have people with a new diagnosis, new homeowners. Folks looking to have their minds put at ease, just like you said, about moving to West Eugene or planting a tree or having chickens or I want to plant a garden with my grandkids and this house that I bought that I wanted to live in forever. You know, they're 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 reaching out and they have been for decades. And so stories like mine and Lori's, like what sort of impact does it have on you when you're going up against legislation when we're sitting in core team meetings, does our stories have a significant impact? I mean, it's got to. It really does. And I have to say, Arjorie, you've probably seen
1: me in action with those stories to back up my anger, my ire. <clears throat> I just feel again in that mission I have to be part of the weaving of what is repairing the, the world, you know, repairing our communities that I have to continually bring back the lens of environmental justice to those meetings and meetings and meetings that you and I are in with regulatory agencies, uh, because we have to change their culture. Their Mm. culture has been to favor the polluter. Their culture has been to allow themselves to be, I'll call it extortion, to be extorted by these polluters, to believing really that the polluters are not completely obligated to safeguard our communities. We have to upend that, you know? So yes, the stories of community members like you, like Lori, and the many, many other stories we've heard and and shared, you know, with the community inspire
0: me every single day, even if someone doesn't like it. Yeah. It's what we're there for. I, I'm in the right place. And I'm so happy that I, I've Found Beyond Toxics and you all found me because it has helped put my mind at ease to know that what was happening and what I thought was happening was actually really happening. And to have Beyond Toxics reach out to me during that searching phase was all I needed to just pick it up and say, I'm going to run with it. So now the DEQ and the EPA have identified more homes with high concerning levels of dioxin. They're going to be collecting more samples you know they're going to be some early testing in, in early 2023 like i said the epa has gotten involved in this and they have sampled an additional 22 yards and identified a number of additional yards that will need to have cleanup so when the epa stepped in and started to help with all this did that change your view like okay Maybe this will be okay. Maybe we can work towards making it be okay for this community. Did the EPA stepping in help you feel that way? You might be surprised by my answer. I'm going to say no.
1: Okay. No, because we still have the same work to do. We still have to bring community experiences to the policy making. We still have to remind our agencies that they need to keep the community informed. We still have to show them where the system is broken. And Mm -hmm. if I may, I'd like to give an example or two of how we continue to do that, whether or not the EPA is involved. Yes, please. The EPA, again, is working along the same broken structures as our state agencies, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example... There's a opportunity, we'll call it, something called the Supplemental Environmental Projects, SEP. This is a program that the DEQ or the Lane Regional Air Protection Agency offers to polluters if they get a fine. So let's just take, again, the example of J.H. Baxter. They had that fine. They could have chosen to have a reduced fine but use the money to go to a environmental project the supplemental environmental project those projects are pretty much decided on behind closed doors the community doesn't get any say or very little say in what those projects will look like and whether they'll have any benefit for the community that was harmed so for example a polluter might choose to do some build some culverts for fish passage in a stream that might be dozens of miles away and have nothing to do with that community. Mm-hmm. So we've been drawing, we meaning beyond Toxics have has drawn attention to the fact that the community should be involved in the decisions about whether or not a polluter gets to participate in this supplemental environmental project, what it looks like, how do we calculate value to the community? And I'm really excited about this, making sure that they can't, Subtract like the cost of their lawyers and the cost of the meals they're serving their lawyers Mm -hmm. from the amount that will go to the community. Can you believe that was pretty much allowed and not really trapped that they could take their own business expenses and subtract it from the money that went to communities? So we're bringing that to the attention of our agencies. And I want to say that I'm happy to find that they're really open to correcting these injustices. But that's the work we're focused on. I mean, yes, we're right there when the EPA is deciding what homes to test and what will happen, but we're looking out to the bigger systemic problems that we need to change through our environmental justice work.
0: Something you said was we get called from Moms. We get calls from agencies. We just seem to be at the nexus of where the government and communities try to find solutions. That was 7 years ago. 2 years ago, we became members of the core team. I would describe you as a visionary. Would you have envisioned all this happening in West Eugene back when Beyond Toxics first began our work in West Eugene? Did you envision it being how it is now? Absolutely. Yes.
1: Because, because what I always say to our staff is if you can envision it, you can make it happen. I really believe that. And that's why we never give up, right? We don't always get the change we seek right away. But if we just keep that vision ahead of us and we keep moving toward it, I believe we can make it happen. We have to have stick-to-itiveness and, you know, we're always called a feisty organization. (laughs) A lot of people say, man, you guys just never give up. But that's because we have a vision and we're going to move toward that vision at every opportunity. So, yeah, when people started calling us back in 2003 and 2004, I had a vision that we could change things. And, you know, we're not all the way there yet but we've made significant steps. And I think that, I hope, I believe that the changes that we're working on, like the Supplemental Environmental Project Guidelines or the Public Health Overlay Zone that you've talked about on this podcast, we're weaving that repair
0: into a broken system. And it takes time. It does. And thank you for inviting me to be in that time frame, <laughs> I love working with you all. And I think you're just an amazing woman, Lisa, and having you have a chat with me today, it was, it, it was really special to me because it, it made me think about when you reached out to me on Facebook, on messenger, you don't even go on Facebook. So I nope. don't know how you figured out who I was or what, but uh,
1: I have a feeling Crystal might have had a hand in that. Someone said to me, you should see this person on Facebook. (laughs) But it was when we met, Arjorie, and here it was COVID time, and you and I were masked, and it was freezing cold, and we were sitting outside on a picnic bench, and I I just looked into your eyes, and I had that that kind of intuition that this was going to be a partnership that would bring so much benefit to the West Eugene community that you had what it takes to do it, even though I didn't know you.
0: You knew my spirit. Yeah, I think so. I definitely think so. Yeah. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I I just, I want you to come back for another times again and again and again. But this time was really super special and, and I appreciate your time.
1: Oh my gosh, I've... I'm so excited to be on here. I've never been on a podcast in my life. And, <laughs> and thank you for giving me a chance to chat with you, because goodness knows we never have this time when we're doing the work, right? No, we, we are don't. so focused on doing the work. Yeah. That's very rare that we get a chance just to explore the history and oh, like the name of your podcast, why we do the work. exactly. Yeah. This is a great opportunity, so thank you for creating it and inviting me to participate.
0: You're so welcome. Thank you. And Crystal, as always, thank you for your magic. That's Crystal behind the scenes. She's our communications manager, and we wouldn't be able to do this podcast without her special expertise. So thank you so much, Crystal. And thank you again, everybody, for listening to Why We Do the Work. I'm Arjorie, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.